Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares part four of his series, The Gospel of John. Today's message is titled, Concerning His Concerns. First, our scripture reading, followed by an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. God bless the reading of his word. We're studying through the Gospel of John in 2021, and uh, it is a story of seven miracles. John likes to call them signs. And so we read here in the last verse of our public reading, verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. But now my question is, why did Jesus launch his entire ministry with a miracle, a sign like this? After all, this wasn't an exorcism. It wasn't raising anyone from the dead. It wasn't a healing. The first miracle Jesus was uh, performing was just for a wedding party that had run out of libations. Doesn't that seem odd? I mean, leaders plan their first step very carefully. So a teacher thinks a lot about her first day in front of the class. Uh, An aspiring writer thinks a lot about his debut novel. A president puts a lot of thought into an inaugural speech. And that's because these things set expectations for what is to come. And yet, here in this passage... It seems that there was no planning at all. Jesus was responding to poor planning. He was just fixing a catering disaster. Or is there more to the story? When we look into this story, we discover that we are to entrust our concerns to Jesus' heart, and we are to entrust our heart to Jesus' concerns. All of the Christian life is contained in those two actions. So if you have your sermon notes online or in hand, I want you to write a couple of things down. First of all, you can entrust your concerns 
to his heart. Now, as people first start studying through the Gospel of John, they very quickly discover that there are often two levels to a story. So on the surface, somebody does something or says something, but then the more you look at it, you realize something is going on underneath the surface. And people who first start studying the Gospel of John, they get so excited discovering this reality that they want to rush to the beauty of what's underneath the surface, and they end up ignoring the beauty of what's on the surface. I want us to pay attention to the beauty of what's on the surface. On the surface, this story tells us that Jesus is involved in our joys, and he is involved in our cares. He is involved in our joys. If you think that somebody who is serious with God is somebody who is characterized with severity, and disdain and remoteness. What do you do with this picture of Jesus? I mean, Jesus was the most spiritual man who ever lived. And yet this passage, verse 2, tells us that he was invited to a party and he went. In fact, this is the first of plenty of stories in the Gospels of Jesus going to parties. Uh, in Matthew chapter 11, we find out that his enemies accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Now, critics are going to do what critics are going to do, and they exaggerated uh, clearly the, the, these characteristics by, calling, by, by describing Jesus in this way. Jesus was not a glutton with food. He wasn't a drunkard with wine. But, you know, you don't get criticisms like that if you're a hermit that stays away from everybody. Jesus uh, was somebody who fasted, uh, but he was somebody who feasted as well. He was somebody who uh, gave himself to prayer, but he also attended parties as well. He was approachable, he was relatable, and he sanctifies all our common, ordinary, earthly joys by simply being a part of them. He's involved in our joys, but he's also involved in our cares. Uh, in, in this text, this wedding party that Jesus had been invited to was coming toward a disaster. The partygoers didn't know it at the time, but the groom's family was running out of wine. Now, apparently, Mary had some connection to the groom's family because she knew about this looming crisis, even though everybody else at the party didn't. And so she brought this looming disaster to Jesus and said, they have no more wine. Now, why am I using uh, phrases like looming disaster to talk about this? If, if you've ever been in charge of a party, you know that one of the things that keeps you up at night is worrying whether you have enough supplies. But the reality is that whatever your greatest fear has ever been as a party planner, it doesn't come anywhere close to the anxiety that this groom's family must have felt at this particular time. Jesus was raised in what's called a shame and honor culture. Still in many places in the Middle East today, it's a shame and honor culture. And the uh, the, the thought that the groom's family would run out of supplies could signal to the bride's family that they didn't think too much of this match. And everybody would have walked away humiliated. In fact, in the first century world, people actually sued each other over these types of things because of the loss of face. And so when Jesus' when Jesus's mother came to him and said, they're about out of wine, what she was saying was, this is heading for a disaster. Now, I don't think that Mary was expecting Jesus to do a miracle at this juncture. 
not because she didn't think he could do one. I mean, she remembered the message of the Christmas angel that came to her and talked to her about the remarkable son that she was going to bear through virgin conception. She knew about all of that. She knew he was capable of it, but he had never solved any of their problems up to this point by performing a miracle. But she was a uh, person who maybe, though she wasn't looking for a miracle, she was looking for her oldest son to do something. Just like many uh, uh, widowed women, especially if they're widowed fairly young in their life, they become very dependent upon their sons and daughters, particularly maybe their eldest son. And that's the case here. Uh, scholars tell us that by this juncture, Joseph of the Christmas story was dead. Mary was widowed. He's not, he doesn't show up in, in any of the stories of, of Jesus' uh, life and ministry. Other family members do, but not him. And so I think scholars are accurate to assume that he had died at this point and Mary was a, a widow. And up to this point, Jesus had taken care of Mary and the rest of the family by being a carpenter, making a living in that way. And he had only recently laid down his carpenter's tools to begin his ministry, but Mary was accustomed to depending upon her oldest son. And so she came to him with this particular issue here. Now, Jesus responds to her in a way that at first seems strange to us. And in a moment, we're going to talk about that strange response of Jesus as we move into the deeper part of the story. But let's stay on the surface part of the story for a little bit longer, because whatever Jesus uh, did mean by his strange statement to Mary, here's what he didn't mean. He didn't mean no, because he answered her request. He responded to her and met this need. And he provided, he met this need by providing a miraculous abundance of the best wine without anybody and the, among the party goers knowing that he did it. The whole point was to enable this groom and this groom's family to save face. And so Jesus performed this miracle in such a way that the groom ended up getting all the credit. Do you see that in the humorous statement of the master of the banquet? The master of the banquet has brought a sample of this, this wine and he didn't know where it came from. And uh, he tasted it and said, you know, most people, they serve the best stuff first, and then the cheaper stuff later, you've saved the best for last. So think about this. Mary was worried that the groom and his family was about to lose face, and then the groom ends up being treated like, as if he was an absolute hosting genius here. This is the way Jesus takes care of our earthly needs as we bring them to him many times. I think it's interesting, one of the eyewitnesses to this miracle would have been Simon Peter. We see here that the disciples were with Jesus and Simon Peter would have witnessed this miracle and it was decades later when Simon Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, where do you think he first learned that? I think he first started to learn that here in this story we're looking at today when he saw Mary cast all her anxiety on Jesus and he saw Jesus care for her. At the surface level of this story, we learn that we are to entrust our concerns to his heart. Don't assume your burdens are too trivial to discuss with the king of the universe. As one of our songs puts it, oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. If Jesus was willing to employ all of his divine power to fix a catering disaster. Don't you think that Jesus is willing to get involved in the messes of your own life as well? Entrust your concerns to his heart. 
But as I said, many of the stories in John's gospel have a deeper level underneath the surface level of the story. If at the surface level, this story tells us that we can entrust our concerns to Jesus' heart, at the deeper level, I want you to write this down on your notes, you must entrust your heart to his concerns. Now, like I said earlier, verse 4 sounds strange at first. When Mary said, they have no more wine, Jesus begins by addressing her, woman. Now, this doesn't sound like the way a good Jewish boy should talk to his mama, right? In the Western world, we would look upon this as something that was demeaning or insulting to refer to anybody who should be dear to us in this way. But I could take you to several places in the Bible that would let you understand that in Jesus' culture to address somebody in this way was not meant as demeaning. It was, it was, it was used affectionate and in a term of endearment in other places, and I think that's the way Jesus would have meant it here. So he wasn't being rude, but he was being blunt. Because you can see, as he replies to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? In other words, you and I are not on the same page. Mary was Jesus' mother, but Mary also had to be Jesus' disciple. And disciples are supposed to be on the same page as the one that they follow. And so Jesus tried to get her on the same page. He said, woman, we're not on the same page here. My hour has not yet come. Now, when he said my hour has not yet come, he was not saying my hour to start doing miracles has not yet come. My hour to sort of disclose myself to the public has not yet come. How do we know that's not the case? Because he went on to perform the miracle. I think the way some people understand this passage, they misunderstand this passage, that Jesus said, it's not time for me to go public yet, Mom. And Mary says, do whatever he says. And he says, oh, all right, I'll do it. That's not the way that we should understand this miracle and the way Jesus responded. In every instance in the Bible, when Jesus spoke of his hour, he was speaking about his coming cross. He was speaking about the time that he would suffer and die for our sins upon the cross. Now, even as we understand it in that way, we're still not understanding the passage, right? Because it sounds like a non sequitur for Jesus to say this. You know what a non sequitur is. It's a Latin phrase to speak of a claim or a response that doesn't logically follow from a statement that's already been made. So if you ask me, what's the weather like, out what's the weather like outside? And I said, it's 2 o'clock. Uh, that's a non sequitur. At first, it seems like what Jesus is saying here is just as silly as what I just said in response to that weather question. Mary says, they have no more wine. Jesus says, it's not time for me to die yet. What in the world is going on here? It doesn't seem coherent. But of course, everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did was deliberate and intentional and well thought out. So what was Jesus doing here? Those of you who are singles, you know what it's like to go to some friend's wedding and think about your own. You're sitting there looking at the bride and groom, one or both are your friends, but you're thinking about your own upcoming wedding. You may not be engaged yet, you may not be in a serious relationship with somebody yet, but you're sitting there at somebody else's wedding and you're thinking, when will I get married? Who will I get married to? What will be the venue? What will be the details? I like this part of their wedding. I might use that in my wedding. You think in these terms whether you're always conscious of it or not. Jesus was sitting at this wedding, looking at this groom 
fretting about providing wine for his bride. And he was thinking about what he would have to do to provide wine for his bride. You say, wait, Jesus was expecting a wedding? He was expecting to provide wine for his wedding? What do you mean by that? Well, of course. Don't you know everywhere in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom in love with his bride. Who is his bride? The church, you and me. You remember this time last year, we were in another book that the Apostle John wrote, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation culminates in this call in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So this couple in front of Jesus had no more wine for their wedding feast unless he supplied it. And Jesus knew that his bride would have no wine unless he supplied it. What wine am I talking about? Well, every time you're in the Lord's Supper and you take that cup of red wine or red grape juice in your hand and you hear me recite the words of institution, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus was concerned about what concerned Mary, but he also wanted Mary and all of us as his disciples to be concerned about what concerned him. So Jesus met the need of wine for this party in a way that signaled how he was going to meet our need, his bride's need for wine at the, at the end of all time. How did he do it? He took six stone water jars that were used for the ceremonies of ritual purification and he turned that water into wine. Now, why did he use these, these particular containers? Did it just happen to be large enough containers near at hand, and so they happened to be at hand, and he used them, much like a southern lady uses butter tubs? You know what I'm talking about? You go into a southern lady's kitchen and open up the refrigerator and pull out a butter tub, and you open it up, and it might be butter or it might be yesterday's leftovers. You know what I'm talking about? You think maybe that's what Jesus was doing. They just happened to have these big old containers nearby, and so he used them like we use butter tubs. He just made the wine in that. No, not at all. Everything about what Jesus did was intentional and deliberate, and he was intentional and deliberate in using these, these containers of water for ritual purification to turn into the wine that he would provide his bride. He supplied wine for this couple in jars used for ceremonial purification. Jesus' Jesus's culture had a number of rituals for ceremonial purification. Some of them were ordered by the Old Testament. Some of them were elaborations on what you read in the Old Testament. And uh, you perform these things in several instances in your life, but you perform, perform these actions of ritual uh, purification, especially as you are receiving food. It wasn't for hygiene, it was for holiness. People uh, accurately believed in the Old Testament that when they received food, it was a gift. It was a gift from God himself on their table. And when you're receiving the gift of a king, you kind of clean yourself up, right? You kind of present yourself. You're not, you're not casual and flippant about that. And so these rituals for purification was a ceremonial way of preparing yourself to receive the gift of a king. Now, we don't engage in ceremonial washings today, but it is interesting how we still pair together guilt 
and the need to be physically clean. Psychologists bear this out. One psychologist, Dr. Katie Lindquist of Northwestern University, led a study where her team asked a group of 60 college students to come together. Some of them were put in one room, some were put in another. Uh, the ones that were put in one room were told to think of something that they had done that they were proud of in their past, some ethical deed, some act of sacrifice on behalf of somebody else. They didn't have to explain it, didn't have to write it down, just be thinking about it. And they told another group to think about something that they were ashamed of, some unethical deed that they regret, they wish they hadn't done it. Again, they didn't have to name it, they just had to think about it. And then she gave to them these two words. Let's put them up on the screen. And they were simply asked to answer what those words were. And in most of the cases, that group that had been told to think of something unethical, something in their past that they were ashamed of, they filled in the first word, with wash, and they filled in the second word with soap. They could have said wish, but they thought of wash. They could have said soup, and they thought of soap. It was as if in their mind they recognized that they needed to cleanse themselves in some way as they thought about something that they had done wrong. Even in our increasingly secular age, we recognize that we have guilt that needs to be cleansed. We have stains that need to be purified. This is what was happening with these jars of ritual purification. When Jesus turned those jars into the wine of his new presence, Jesus was saying that his death on the cross, when his blood ran like red wine on the cross, it would be for the purification of his bride. And that's what his apostles that came after him said as well. The apostle Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, doing what? Cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So Mary says, the groom has no more wine for his bride. Jesus says, I'm already thinking of the time I'm going to have to supply wine for my bride. I'm going to have to sacrifice myself for her purification. And so Jesus miraculously supplied wine for this wedding party in containers used for ceremonial washing. And he did so so that we might understand what was his concern, what was on his mind. There's an interesting detail in the crucifixion story according to the Gospel of John. We'll get to it in a few months, but... Let's go ahead and look at John chapter 19, verses 28 and 30. There we read later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Notice this, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now I want you to think about that. When we humans gave wine to Jesus in his suffering, he was going about the process of providing wine through his suffering. But when we humans gave Jesus wine, it was that cheap, sour wine vinegar that Roman soldiers sometimes got for their pay. When Jesus gave us his wine, it was, what did the stewards say? The very best saved for last. So we learn from today's passage that you must entrust your 
concerns to his heart, but you also must entrust your heart to his concerns. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us these same two things. There are six petitions in the Lord's Prayer, right? What are the first three? Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. You hear the word thy, thy, thy show up. In the last three prayer requests of the Lord's Prayer, it's give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Instead of thy, 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 it is us, us, us. We're to pray for our concerns, but we're also to be concerned with his concerns. Never get to a point where you're just praying half the Lord's Prayer. Lord, I want this. Why haven't you given me that? We're certainly to lift up our concerns to the Lord, but we're to get ourselves to a point spiritually where we are concerned with his concerns. Jesus taught us to pray that in the Lord's Prayer. He is teaching us in this first of his miracles, not only to pray in that way, but to live in that way as well. Now, did the disciples understand all of this as they were watching it unfold? No. Over and over again, we're going to see in the Gospel of John that they didn't understand everything Jesus did. They didn't understand everything Jesus said until they looked at it through the prism of the cross and the resurrection afterwards. But it is interesting that upon seeing this, this passage said his disciples believed in him. Now, first you say, wait a minute. They were already disciples. Didn't they already believe in him? Didn't we see last week how they came to him and started to follow him? Last week it says they believed in him, and now it says this week they saw the, the miracle that Jesus did and believed in him. What's going on here? Well, the reality is that the understanding of believing in Jesus was never this box you check, some rite of passage that you go through, this one-time act that you do back when you were an eight-year-old at vacation Bible school, and then you can move on to other things after that. Those who believe in him must believe in him. If you believe in him today, you must believe in him next, next week and next year, next decade. You still must be going through experiences and through Bible studies that cause you to believe in him all over again. That's what the disciples did in this passage. That's what we need to do today. We need to believe in him for the first time and start becoming followers of the Lord Jesus Christ or having done so, we need to believe in him again and again and again as we move deeper and deeper into our relationship with him. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Tom Goodman shares part five of the Gospel of John with a message titled, Not a Tame Lion, I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.